0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now
1: while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now.
0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
2: Horacio Castellanos Moya is a writer and a journalist. He has worked as an editor for magazines and newspapers in Mexico, in Guatemala, and in his home country. He has published over 11 novels, five short story collections, and two essay collections. They have been translated into 11 languages, and currently he teaches creative writing and media in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at the University of Iowa. With us from Cambridge, thank you, Rory, for coming is um, a Senior Lecturer in Latin American Literature and Culture at the University of Cambridge. He's also written a book called Spectres of Violence, La Violencia, and edits the Journal of Latin American Cultural Studies. Muchas gracias, Horacio. Muchas gracias, Rory. Please welcome our guest tonight. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
3: So...
1: Thank you very much, uh, Natalia. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, Thanks to the LRB um, and to the Salvadoran Embassy, and especially to Marta Dueñas for setting up this event. Thank you, of course, to Horacio for for coming. Uh, It's a real great privilege to be here with you, Horacio, on your first visit to London. Uh, It's really great that you've made it down from the cold northern climes of Stockholm to London's sizzling, tropical inferno. (laughs) Um, But it's a particular honor for me uh, to be given an opportunity uh, to talk with you today about your works, especially given how much I've enjoyed reading it uh, over the last years. I think your work has been seminal in so many ways, uh, not only in its reinvigoration of Central American narrative, a narrative which, sadly, for many of us uh, who teach Latin American literary studies or cultural studies in the UK, remains relatively unknown, I think. But I think it's especially interesting because of its unique, the unique perspective your work brings uh, to understanding the changing landscape of post-dictatorial, post-Cold War, uh, Latin American culture, so-called, to experiences of political defeat, uh, to the inversions and perversions of memory after the various civil wars. Uh, and to the current revisiting of old ideological pieties. Um, I think it's unique in its sonority, in its sound, in your mastery of the first-person monologue, uh, in its immersion into the the murky passions and emotions that undergird everyday life in Central America and in Latin America, and in its pursuit of the percolation of politics or political passions through this murk, through, the, through, through paranoia, through anxiety, uh, through terror. So uh, as we agreed, uh, rather than dwell at the general level, uh, so as not to run the risk of uh, going straight into asking you to become a representative of El Salvador, <laughs> um, as is often the case when a Latin American writer comes to, comes to Europe, um, I think we should proceed as we agreed to talk uh, straight away about your novels. And I'd like to start asking you about insensatez, senselessness. So senselessness was the the first of your novels that I read, and no doubt the first of the novels that many of those here will have read in translation. And it famously opens with the line, I am not complete in the mind, said the sentence I highlighted in yellow marker pen, as your narrator begins copying editing the 1,100-page 1, report on human rights atrocities committed against the indigenous men and women in a country loosely identifiable as Guatemala. Uh, these words, the words of a Maya K'iche' man who's seen his family butchered by the military, haunt the narrator and progressively augment his sense of, his sense of paranoia, his sense that he too is not complete in the mind. And this of course, as you remember, develops into a full-blown paranoid hallucination or trip. So the question, I'll get to the question, I promise. (laughs) The question that occurred to me uh, as I watched this very subtle interplay uh, between individual and a collective uh, perspective concerns the question of the text's direct or indirect revisiting of a testimonial writing tradition from Central America, and specifically the traditional Rigoberta Menchu, whose testimonial of 1983 uh, famously aligned her story with the story of all poor Guatemalans. So to what extent do you think senselessness, insensatez builds on this testimonial tradition? To what extent do you critique that tradition or reorient its thematic and aesthetic concerns? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
3: Oh, very patient.
4: Thank you, Rory. Uh, thanks for being with me here. Thanks to the bookstore, to Natalia. Thanks to Elizabeth and the embassy, St. Francis the Institute, Instituto Cervantes, that help, has supported me all around the world, I would say. Testimony, Central America, fiction. Let's say that uh, both. Mm-hmm. You, you asked me if there is a kind of critique and a kind of reordering. Reordering, yeah. Yeah, both. Both because um, all these magnifying ideas about Central American testimony were, were important at this time. Mm-hmm. But testimonies are all general. I mean, Henofonte wrote analysis 500 years before Christ, and that's a testimony, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but I think that um, there was a kind of trend by scholars, mainly in the U.S., uh, mm. saying that uh, testimony was the new genre. Yeah,
1: yeah.
4: Fiction was dead; the novel was dead, and the new literary phenomenon coming from not only Central America, because that came from Cuba in the beginning, right? Uh, Biografía of Cimarron, Manuel Barnett, Canción de Raquel. Mm -hmm. And so, so of course, I could not be, I could not agree with that idea of fiction is dead or, or, or novel is dead and now... Central America is going to be represented by testimony. I think that all political actors have the right to express them, their position, their experiences, their, their idea of the war, how they think that what happened to them has been important. Yeah. But that's not literature, in an understanding of literature. Right? that right? I respect that as kind of... So logical testimony or anthropological. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> in that sense, it's a critique. Yeah. But in the other sense, it's a reordering. Why? Because I used it.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Right. Of course, uh, the, the book is based in a real terrible report, the report of how the armed forces of Guatemala kill thousands indigenous population, right? I mean, 44, 442 massacres, right? And so you read the report, you get completely shocked. But when I read the report, and when I took the sentences from that report, that six years later, when I found that notebook, I decided, oh, this is a novel. I, I used them. I was shocked by the report, and I think mm-hmm. that, but I said, I have, I'm not going to use this. I'm not going to have my fiction book to go into the political debate in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And that's why the word Guatemala doesn't exist in the book. Mm -hmm. Of course, if in the first page I say Kashiquel Indians, you know that I'm talking about Guatemala, right? But there are these contradictory messages at the same time. So it's both. It's a critique of the idea that fiction doesn't exist and testimony is the new genre, or was, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. because that collapsed afterwards, and I talked about this with one of um, yeah. the main brains on the back of that yeah. was um, a, a professor in Pittsburgh, and uh, I mean, he he, he he was reading Bolaño by the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no so yeah. novel was there, right? Yeah. So, um, but.
1: Was yeah. this John Beverly? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who makes this claim, doesn't he? That there is no literate, no literary quality at all. The claim was that this would bypass, yeah, would do away with literature. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it seems to me that your recovery as literature, the ex- very experience,
4: the terror of reading. Yeah, to bring it. I mean, the experience of, for me, the idea of literature is to you bring everything, all the collective collective experience to. Your personal experience, your mm. personal emotions, your mm. personal thoughts, and uh, your personal way of facing life, right? Yeah. And so, and that—that's how you create characters that are dealing with that. Mm. But I, as a fiction writer, I'm less interested in the historical truth of what is happening there than in the subjective truth that the character is yeah. facing, yeah. right?
1: That's right. I mean, and what I, I mean, I really found very suggestive was the words "I'm not complete in the mind," uh, along with these disjointed, fragmentary <laughs> witness statements that your narrator reads. They, they, they capture the senselessness of violence. So violence is the way it exceeds rational, ideological motivations, but they're also perhaps perversely ripe full of sense and you try to capture the that richness of sense the re- the psychic remainders the traumatic resonances and you make another book out of those those excesses
4: Yeah, because it's it's more than that It's, mm. it's another culture another civilization that is there that yeah. the, the character that is the narrator doesn't get yeah that's you right you know and so but he's not aware that he doesn't get it yeah. he's just getting the consequences of how this culture and this civilization was repressed or has been repressed for so many centuries.
1: So I was going to ask about his not getting it because halfway through the book he imagines that he might, he's going to write another book. This is the story of two books, isn't it? The story of the Comisión de la Verdad, de Nunca Mas, and then the story of his own book which would speak from these excesses and he he starts to write it, but he can't finish it either. But he and I wonder know, whether
4: that was He He doesn't start. He just thinks that, who, who is going to be interested in another book about killing Indians? Yeah, yeah. Right? That's what yeah. he says, right? I mean, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So he's very cynical in that, mm. right? And But he has a good story to start the book. That yeah. is, the story of this guy that was killed. He was the register of the town. And... The registrar, yeah, yeah, the registrar of the town, and, yeah. and then, um, but uh, that means that he is aware. This is a kind of contradict, paradoxical mm-hmm. thing. He thinks that fiction is useless. Yeah. He that is a character of fiction. Uh-huh. There is talking about real facts. Mm-hmm. Think that those real facts could be used to write fiction, and he thinks that fiction is useless.
1: So he, in some senses, has, as a writer, has suffered the consequences of a public sp- sphere that is saturated, that in which there is only testimonial.
4: Yeah, but the book is written. The book is written. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I mean, I ask these questions because it seems that, while being an intensely political book. Like nearly all of your books, um, it doesn't, of course, take politics as a theme, does it, Um, to the detriment of the literary, Um, but consciously explores this processing of politics as psychic material, as literature. I know you've talked a lot about this before, but could you say something perhaps for this audience about um, this interplay between literature and politics as you imagine it?
4: I think that uh, I, I mean, every writer is the product of his his own or her own circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I am the product of my own circumstances. So that means that I grew up and I was raised in a place where politics was like everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So my character's, At least this character, he doesn't care about politics. He doesn't care too much even about what he's reading. He's reading about the mass, 440 massacres of indigenous, Mm. right? Mm. And he's not too much concerned. He's much more concerned about the, you know, his honorarium. He's much more concerned about the girls that he's going to get. About about going for a beer. And so, but then you see that on the back is this Huge mm. report, right? Mm. So I could say that in my books, that's the situation. That on the back, sometimes it's a huge report, or some, sometimes it's a, a very intense political situation, but it's, that's the landscape. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, that's the landscape. That's not the, the main issue, it's not about the power fighting between the political forces. No. No. You know, that is happening on the back. And the characters have their own passion, passions, their own yeah. um, problems, their own, as you say, psychic crisis, emotional mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, passions that are... The literature is made of passion, right? I think
1: mean, that's what right. you say. It's become background. It's become landscape. Yeah. It's become nature or second nature. Second it? nature, it's yeah. always there, like the heat. Yeah. Like that. You've Elsewhere, this is related. You've described yourself... As an auditory writer, as opposed to a visual one,
3: mm-hmm.
1: as someone who works with sound, I wonder whether you could say a little bit more about that distinction. So ha- how does this interest in sound, in the voice, inform senselessness's exploration of this very fine line between psychosis, paranoia, and later poetry? There's a poetic dimension there, it?
4: Yeah, he talks about the language that is like Cesar Vallejo poetry and because how the sense of time that the Maya culture has is not the sense of time that we have in the Western world and how they try to adapt the Spanish language that is a Western language Mm. to their own concept of time and so they change the adverb they Mm. use the verb in a very different way so there is poetry there not poetry as a because they have a will of creating poetry just because they have so much pain that Mm. when they express the pain, the Mm. pain becomes, with these words, kind of very poetic language. Mm. I think that with the... (laughs) This is very schematic about the ear and the eye, right? Yeah. And I think that we are, in that sense, in the same situation that with politics. That's not something that you... Decide, it's not your choice. It's your talents are not your choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you hear, you hear. If you don't see, mm-hmm. you don't see, right? So I don't know which uh, parts of your education, besides your own senses, mm-hmm. determine that kind of writer that you have become, in the mm-hmm. sense that you work mm-hmm. more with the language and with the rhythm and with the mm-hmm. The melody of the prose instead mm-hmm. of working with the images, yeah. right? And I never decided. I, I, that was a reflection that I had afterwards mm-hmm. when, when I was asked because. Uh-huh. And point. then I started to see that many writers that I like and I enjoy I, are this kind of writers. Mm-hmm. And when you have a great writer, like a visual writer, a great writer, let's say Henry Jane, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. I enjoy it, but it's hard for me to read. You know what I mean?
1: I find it hard, too. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: He's read them all. Um, so perhaps we could talk a little bit about Elasco, uh, Revulsion, um, um, which I think the voice is really is really prominent there, an extraordinary voice. I think it's, this is probably your best-known novel in Latin America, at least. Am I right, or am I... Am I
4: I'm not so sure, maybe, not m- so sure. between senselessness and Senselessness they, uh, and yeah. um, So here we read,
1: for those who haven't read it, that the monologue of a very affluent Salvadoran, Ed- Edgar Vega, uh, who's returned from 18 years in exile in Canada, where he teaches art history, and, and he's come back to attend to his mother's funeral. There's always a deathly nurse, isn't there, in San Salvador? And, and then he meets up with this character who's tantalizingly referred to. who's called Moya. No, no resemblance, of course. And he's pours- not a character. He's just a big ear, There's right. A big ear. <laughs> and he pours scorn on the people, the politics, the customs of El Salvador, on the corruption and the violence of the left and of the right, on the nation's poverty, on its criminality, its lack of culture. On the objection of its privatized institutions, the contamination of its landscapes, and even on its music and food. Well, I'm reassured that you like pupusas. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> as a writer, yeah. The author <laughs> likes pupusas. Yeah. But so, I mean, Bega's rant is very disturbing, but it's not unfamiliar for those of you who, you know, those of us who've been to Latin America, you hear this quite a lot. But what I think really is quite surprising is that. This really is a, a new eruption into... This is a novel voice in the contemporary Latin American novel. And that we talked a little bit about, about Fernando Vallejo. I think is think actually quite different. But with the exception of Vallejo, I haven't heard this kind of roar uh, in, in literature for, for a long time. Um, so related to this, the, the Guatemalan novelist and critic Arturo Arias um, <coughs> sees the novel as the expression of a kind of post-war disillusionment and for the Salvadoran critic and artist and I think your friend, Beatriz Cortez, we'll leave that for later um, sees this as the novel as emblematic of an aesthetics of cynicism uh, also pr- present elsewhere in Central American fiction. But my question is um, is Edgardo Vega's hatred of the nation or of nationalism is that really an expression of post-war disillusionment or does it originate elsewhere
4: you know that that book is a well, that book is a problem but um, <laughs> it caused you a lot of problems too didn't it yeah no but the book is a problem Let, yeah. let's forget my problems <laughs> but the book is a problem because you can hear so many different things about the book I have mm-hmm. a friend that is a very good reader I mean a very intelligent guy he says that that book is a Kind of love song to El Salvador. Uh-huh. <laughs> you journey <Yeah. know>? and <laughs> and you that right? Journey so, hate where you love. Yes, yeah, so yes. Yeah. So, but of course, um, the book represents a um, historical period. Mm-hmm. And that's what you were talking about in the sense that the book um, represents a kind of disillusionment with the new. Transition to democracy in Mm -hmm. El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, what happened is that transitions, there was a Chilean politician called Luis Mayra who used to say that transitions are gray. Gray. Revolutions are epic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you have revolutions, you have epics around. Rupture. But, yeah, But transitions are great. I mean, it's just happening. And so and the impression is that in this book, there is a kind of frustration, a kind of disenchantment with the idea that the country was going to change in a cultural way. Uh-huh. You know? Because the country changed in a political way. Other way otherwise... Um, the war mm. had kept going, right? So country had peace courts, you know, peace treaty, yep. I mean, there, were hopes um, there, there is, uh, uh, yeah, and there is all, all the, let's say, all the elements of democracy work in a way mm. bad or worse or better, but they are there. Mm-hmm. Independence of power, alternativity, you know, mm-hmm. independence of uh, electoral commission, all these elements are there.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: But that doesn't mean that in the cultural way, the country changes. So I think that that's what is in the book. Is yeah. That's the main, like, and that's logical because you can push a political change, but to have cultural change, changes, you need generations. Yeah. You know, the, the timing of culture and the timing of politics are completely different. Yeah. And the timings of literature are even they follow different. <laughs> yeah. So and I think that is is, is that what you can find there. Yeah. Because when I I left the country when I published that book, then I came back and people talked to me and said, you have to write the second part and, and whatever. And and you know there are these things that you didn't put in the book, you have <laughs> to write You didn't criticize <laughs> enough. Yeah. And so it's it's
1: done, right? Yeah. It's like Yeah. So this It's interesting because there's there's, there's disillusionment. And that's not the same as cynicism. Oh, no.
4: Nothing to to do with cynicism. No, I think that this theory of cynicism is a little bit like something not Mm. completely accurate, Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm. There is an article by a Spanish scholar that is in Texas, and he wrote about my books. And the title is The the Question of Cynicism. Alberto. Alberto, yeah, yeah.
1: And he says, yeah, he what well, he critiques that. Yeah, idea. he says this so it is, doesn't work. Yeah, because
4: yeah. it's it's not the it's not the main mm. point, right? Yeah. I think that the main point is that in my books, as in books in many in other writers of my generation, it's a permanent critique on power.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And there has to be some kind of belief for there yeah. to be a critique of power. Yeah. And and I think what he says there is one thing is to. Is to assume a cynical voice, and the other is to frame it. So I was going to ask about the most interesting character for me is Moya, who says nothing. He's an ear. Is that ear? <laughs> is that ear complicit, or is that is the silence of Moya? Does that express dissent, or is it, is there a kind of gray zone again? It's bold. Yeah,
4: bold. Yeah, you know, it's like. Uh, first of all, let me explain to you a little bit how this book was written. Yeah. Because sometimes yeah. you understand a little bit about that. I mean, I started to write this book without knowing that I was writing a book.
1: Yeah.
4: I just started to imitate Thomas Berhan's style. Yeah, uh-huh, already. Oh, yeah. Because I had to go to a family reunion that I didn't want to go and I felt like Ugh. and I was in Mexico and, and It's and a pretty good companion <laughs> for that kind of event, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> and, and I started to write this. How long could I write as yeah. Thomas Berhardt? I uh-huh. said, because I have been reading Thomas Berhard' book, in this is amazing translations that you have in Spanish. Uh, there is a... Do you remember the name of the translator? Don Miguel Sainz. He's, this greatest translation that he has, right? <laughs> because I read Thomas Berhard in English, and it's, it's a little bit lost. Yeah, yeah. But in Spanish, it's like... <laughs> You know, Has yeah. more, more punch. Has more punch and this yeah. way of playing with language, uh-huh. taking language to a limit, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I said, how can I do that, right? So uh, it's an exercise de style. That's how it started, yeah. yeah. And like, again, I even finished it. I wrote it like in two weeks, and I even finished it, and I put it in a drawer, and I didn't know that it was a book. Uh-huh. Because for me, it was that. It was yeah. like an, yeah style exercise or whatever, right? Stylistic exercise. And so so, but then I s- understood that uh, the fact that I don't think doesn't mean that the book had ideas.
3: Mm-hmm. You know? of
4: course, of course. <laughs> and so there were many ideas on the book that were representing my state of being of the time that was that mm-hmm. the state of being of the feet. Mm-hmm. Of, of the the, yeah of being like, because I was out of El Salvador the projects in which I had been mm. for the transition were gone for me. Yeah, I didn't have uh, a project for going back, and so what for? And um, so this was
1: the this is the period you narrate in some ways in the dream of my return.
4: And it was that kind of period. Yeah, that after after that period, after yeah. the, the dream of my return is before. Over, Oh, I was before that, before, yeah, 90, yeah, before yeah.
1: 91, and then uh, this is after 91. Yeah, this
4: book was written in 95. Okay, yeah. yeah. By the end of 95, it was started, the last day of 95. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, perhaps to change to, to talk about some other novels that people here yeah, will have read, I wanted to ask you about two novels which I think explore, again, the aftermath of the Civil War in Salvador in very striking, unusual ways. Uh, and the first is Diablo en el Espejo, She, Devil in the Mirror. And the second is El Arma en el Hombre, The Weapon in the Man, which I don't think has been translated. But, um, so in El Arma en el Hombre, which I read first, because it's impossible to get these things in the right order on Amazon, you trace the dizzying twists and turns of fate and often startling changes of political allegiances that lead from civil war to criminal violence and then from criminal violence uh, ...to policing after the formal return of democracy. So we have this narrator, uh, a former soldier called Ro- Robocop... Robocop, ...for his sort of Ernst Jünger-like transformation into a killing machine... ...who works first for a criminal network stealing uh, cars... Uh, ...then with former militiamen engaged in murdering demobilised guerrilleros... ...seeking to enter politics... Then he works for a drug smuggling ring formed of former guerrilleros and soldiers. Uh, and then finally, he's captured by the US and given a second chance to work as an undercover agent for the DEA. Yeah, everything but, comes to the beginning. That's a, <laughs> but that's a pretty powerful indictment of the, the happy story of democratization, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah that so many nations were embracing in the 90s, Chile and Argentina and now Colombia, this, the story of a kind of a tragic circularity. Um, so is all power in the final instance kind of criminality by other means or pure force that just changes its masks?
4: There are two layers in that book. One is that that you mentioned about how violence was recycled, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's how do you recycle violence? And that's very easy to understand, and that's what we have in Central America right now. I mean, um, a violence that has been recycled. Why? Mm. Because the state, the institutions, the society doesn't have the tools to deal with people that were involved in the conflicts and then... Mm. Mm. The violence that they learn to mm. do, or, I mean, becomes their only tool to survive, for saying something. Or that's it's the about only survival, is About surviving. Yeah. And so that's, um, that's there. And, but there are other layers. The other one is that, for me, that's, you were talking at the beginning of this conversation about my critique of testimony. This is the book, Critique uh-huh. of Testimony. Yeah. Because testimony is telling the truth right, of good people. How good I was, Mm -hmm. how bad my enemies are, how bad they treated me, how good I did, how truthful I am, how much truth is on me, and believe me. And so, but this guy is the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's not trying to convince you of anything, right? Because... um, and, but he's not too aware of anything you no. because he doesn't have emotions no. because he's a killing machine mm-hmm. right so so this is the other layer and the other layer is language because mm. to create that character for me was a kind of uh, to the force in the sense that could have nothing that belonged to my own world, mm-hmm. you know in the way how I understand life sure. right and you mentioned a, a, a word that for me is key in this, in this survival. Survival, right, yeah. yeah. He's a survivor. But yeah. then I've been thinking about and I think, well, I mean to be, in a way to be Salvadorian is to be a survivor, you know. I think but, all of your
1: characters are surviving by any means. Yeah, because possible.
4: everything around is mm-hmm. so hostile, everything around is so, that it doesn't matter, it has to do with politics or what, whatever. But you survive. Mm-hmm. And your gene works to survive. And yeah. this guy... I remember when I wrote that book, I was in my brother's house in Basel and I was reading Así uh-huh. That is about the will. Yeah. And I was... And I said, because will, will has no ideology. The will to survive or to... Yeah. You know, has no ideology. And so it, it's, it's, like, it's about that. The book yeah. is about surviving. Mm-hmm. But also about how you are, because you are just surviving. You are just a kind of puppet mm-hmm. of the big powers. Or
1: whoever happens yeah. to hire you out for the best fee. Uh, yeah. Essentially because there's a Nietzschean dimension yeah. to your narration of history in, in Tirana Memoria, in Tyrant Memory, isn't there? Yeah. Where they meet, where the Pericles, Aragón, the end, meets Chelon, his friend, and they say and this is a phrase that we hear in many of your novels, there was no that we there was no return. There is no eternal return. And then he says, I think well if there There is an eternal return, that would be a really sadistic punishment. <laughs> um, so but I noticed that, just I've jumped slightly to that later novel. There's an interesting in, in these kind of historical patterns where, at a, a macro level, isn't there, where, so Robocop ends up back where he started. He's trained by the US in Panama, and he finally ends up with the DEA after fighting with these guerrilleros. And, and in Tirana Memoria and Tyrant Memory, we have the generations going full circle. The, the Abuelo of Pericles who'd fought, who'd led a group of indigenous men against the conservative government. His son then joins the forces of El Brujo, and then his son becomes Politically radicalized during the 1944 coup in Salvador, and then aligns himself with the military afterwards. And there's, somehow, there is a sense of history, like somehow history. There's a cycle but somehow friends and enemies are reconciled over history. They occupy different. They occupy different points of a wheel that keeps turning, as you say. Yeah, the wheel. That's the key image for that. Yeah. So, father and, so usually son, grandson and grandfather, but never son and father. And, sorry, I digress. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I liked what you said about the, um, going back to, to, to talk about Diablo en el Espejo, She, Devil in the Mirror. There was this lovely quotation. At one point, Laura Rivera was twittering. And kind of obsessively about this crime which has been carried out by Robocop in the later novel, and she's going to get to the bottom of it. But she sort of indicts herself and her whole social class in the process. She says, um, Oh, in other cities, you live on one side, and the bad guys live on the other, and there are miles in between, which is how it should be. But in this country, everything's all mixed together, everything's squished together, everything's uno encima del otro, no? Um, and I wonder whether that that sense of being squished, or being, occupying this small space where everything's interwoven, is what, well, what this novel performs, and what many of your novels perform, the sense of being
4: uno encima del otro, y ¿no? difícil de, de desentramar. Well, that's, I think that's part of Salvadorian culture, right? Mm. I mean, you have one of the, highest density of population in the western hemisphere right you have more than i don't know maybe all, almost 300 people by a square kilometer so that means that there are a lot of people everywhere you go there are people right i mean you think that you're in the mountain you are not in the mountain there are people and garbage and you see yeah, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right and so and i think that that's a very important uh, in the sense how you conform your mind and your values and mm-hmm. your way of understanding life right. so uh, but that novel what the novel does in a way is try to portray this ruling class that was so frivolous so mm. and so criminal in a way yeah right yeah they were not doing any killing in the sense that they have the army to do that but uh, What's in, inside them?
1: They were in bed yeah. with the people doing the killing yeah. and swapping lovers.
4: That's a monologue. For me, it was the first time that I did a long monologue in a voice of a woman, and a woman that is not a nice lady. It's no. a na- lady that uh, could be a little bit repulsive. But the funny thing is that many people keep reading. Mm-hmm. Keep reading because her voice is very powerful. Right? very
1: very seductive and compelling. Yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah. Once I met this girl in a bar in and she said, you base on me for writing that character. <laughs> and I said, no. No, no, no. no. <laughs>
1: she did protest a little too much. <laughs> uh, um, I'm aware that the, we've gone slightly over our 45 minutes. So maybe I should ask a few more general questions so as to give the, everyone here the chance to ask <laughs> questions. Um, <coughs> So one question I haven't asked you is, and this is a much more personal one, is how do you write? Uh, And I suppose that's prompted by your use of these free-flowing monologues. Do you start with a plan in your head or do you allow the writing to take you to different places? Is it a discovery?
3: Each book
4: book has its own story about that. I mean... uh And the more I plan, the more I change the plans, and there is a kind of trend, let's say, that short novels like Revulsion, Elasco, like Dance with the Snakes, like Senselessness, that are novels based on, how do you say that, Ah, there is a word that doesn't come to but it's like, um, like when you have a car and it's just a kind of um, inertia, the impact. In the impact, but um, there's another word. Acceleration. Uh, so, uh, Acceleration. Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, it's like spring. Uh-huh. Okay? It's like, it's like when you run 200 meters or 100 meters. You don't have time to do any kind of a speculation, right? You just run. Yep, yep. Right? You run. You don't have time to say between the 50 and the 60 meters, I'm going just to go a little bit low, yeah. and then in uh-huh. the 60, I will go no. Yeah. You, wrong. you run. Right? Yeah. The whole time full. Mm-hmm. But if you run 400 meters, maybe it's not like that. Uh-huh. And if you run 800 meters, it's not like that. And if you run a marathon, it's completely different. So books are like that in a way for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So books that are Yes, 100 or 200 meters are like, there's almost no plan, just two pages with some mm-hmm. notes, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Thailand memory took me like a life, right? Uh, or, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's yeah. a very, um,
1: very different novel. It's very yeah. ambitious in its historical sweep, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it, and it's, a, it's a novel that thinks about history.
4: It brings together two very different experiences mm-hmm. of history. And, and besides that, there are these, afterwards I understood that there are like two blocks of novels, right? Because there are these novels like El Arme en el Hombre, The Table in the Mirror, or um, Senselessness, Revulsion, that are novels that were written between the late eight 90s and the beginning of this century. But, but then there are the other group of novels, Titan Memory or mm-hmm. The Dream of My Return, that belong to a family saga, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so and that's, um, that mm. makes a little difference in the yeah. sense that there are some characters that come from the saga that suddenly I say, this, mm. this character must be developed, must be, I, mm. I have to work with him, right? Or with her. And so it's mm. like another kind of, of, of
1: experience. I know you have, I mean, there's the family saga of the Yeah. but I I also felt that in some of the shorter novels there 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 was a constellation of a kind of growing family saga, which was also a national saga, because you take characters from one novel, you then tell that story, there's
4: yeah, it's Does not a concept of saga. In the, It's like a group of novels, right, that yeah. are related with mm. and different period of history. The 40s, that was the dictatorships and the fighting against the dictatorship. Mm. The 70s or the 60s, that was the war between El Salvador and Honduras. That, Honduras, yeah. That was very important because um, most of the problems that uh, the civil war in El Salvador, in a way, came from that situation, that the, because all the Salvadorians them? that returned to, to, from Honduras, and that's in Desmoronamiento, another novel uh-huh. that is about the yeah. family, yeah. and then I have, the, in this tyrant memory, have, has the 70s, uh-huh. and, and then the, the beginning of the war, that is La Sirvienta y el Luchador, right? Uh, the the, the month uh, where... Monsignor Romero, Bishop Romero, was killed, killed. right? Yeah. And then afterwards you have the, the, the 90s, the post-war. So yeah. that's why when this aspect about cynicism of the post-war is mm-hmm. just like this. It's a tiny fragment.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I think the, there are moments of great humanity in tyrant memory, and there are moments of great comedy. Yeah? And then you've got this very tragic vision at the end. Um, where we see another instance of these reversals and inversion of family allegiances i was thinking of I was, I was thinking of karl marx actually when he says hegel says somewhere that history repeats itself he forgot to say first time is tragedy second time is farce and there's a sense of a kind of tragedy comedy in that those repetitions um, those cycles as well
4: yeah we are just going around and around, like the dog that yeah. tries to bite and so on.
1: But less, it's less mordant, less, less bitter, I find. Aide is a very human character. We feel for her. I mean, she is the beginning of the, of yeah, the culture of the Madres, who come out and collect and organize together to overthrow this, the regime pretty long before what we see in, in Argentina or in Chile.
4: Yeah, that, that novel is the novel um, in which I have more common-sense characters. I mean, n- more normal. They're not mad. Yeah, yeah. not very crazy, drink, delirant, yeah. that aren't the other ones. They right? don't drink very much. They don't, and they are, I days Catholic, yeah. I days yeah. a very family lady, and yeah. I is uh, very traditional. And yeah. So for me, it was like... Um, experience to going to other kind of war, yeah. in that sense.
1: Perhaps, uh, perhaps we should open up the floor to questions. Just before we do so, if anyone objects to Horacio's writing, I have words from Bolaño. He says, Moya's humour threatens the hormonal stability of imbeciles, who when they read him feel the irrepressible desire to hang the author in the town square. I can't think of a higher honour for a real writer, and I'd like to echo words. <laughs> yeah, so
4: over good. to the
3: public. Thank you, Rory.
4: First of all, thank you, both.
1: Thank you, Rory, and thank you for being here. It's a, it's an honour to, to hear you talking. You mentioned the,
4: the, very briefly in passing the assassination of Bishop Romero, and
1: I just wondered if you thought, if you had any perspective on. The reception of Jorge Galán's Noviembre, which came out uh, last year, and what how that positions reading and literature in El Salvador today.
4: That's um, that's the second book on the killing of Romero. The first one was a play written in Costa Rica, but uh, in the eighties, that was much more close to the death of the Archbishop of T.S. Eliot than. Than this. This is a non fiction book. And it's a very interesting book in the sense that it goes into the personal things of the prison that period and in, in how they were killed. I don't think that the book gives any information that was not already, already public, right? Uh, so it's a little bit difficult to understand. Maybe he was, as far as I understand, he was threatened because what the information that he has and has not been published because he was obliged by a Spanish judge to give all his tapes. And so maybe that uh, is something that um, affected the some military that were very open to talk, and then he didn't put that information in the book, because the book has nothing to explain why the reaction has been so extreme, right? There is another book about Monsignor Romero that was published a couple of months ago by an academic scholar in, in the US that is part of the group that works on the judicial system in the US taking to trial all this military right and, and that has information that you say so i think that the in the literary way is good the book is very positive because reminds to young salvadorian writers that, that we have a kind of history where if we had kind of Shakespeare. We had all the tragedies there. You know what I mean? We have Roque Dalton. We have mm-hmm. uh, Monsignor Romero. We have the Jesuits. We have the, that because Galán is not Monsignor Romero. It's about the Jesuits. And we have uh, the killing of uh, Martial. that was a commandant. There was a killing that is just a tragedy. You yeah. know, yeah. Salvador is full of tragedies. Yeah. Right? And this, but very, very, very concentrate material for, for writers of tragedies. So I think it's, in that sense it's very positive and, and it, because there are plenty of material in our country to, 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 to talk about real history.
3: Hello. Can you comment or reflect on your life experience during the war in El Salvador? What I'm trying to get is what made you write what you, what, what you have written. You know, What is your experience? How, how long do you live there? What violent experiences do you have? What is
4: your... Yeah. Um, let's say that I was out of El Salvador during the whole civil war. So that's why I don't write about the civil war. There are no novels about the civil war in itself, about the, the war, the combats, the something that, uh, let's say, some equivalent of war books about with characters that are fighting that are in the middle of the war, because I didn't have that experience, so for me it's quite difficult to go into that. But the 10 years of the Civil War, I was most of the time in Mexico City. And of course, a, a Civil War is a, it's like a kind of maelstrom, right? That, Every, everyone was, in a way, involved in that, right? In my case, I, as a journalist, I, most of the time, half of my stay in Mexico was working as a journalist, tracking what was happening in El Salvador, working for agencies that were deeply involved covering the situation of the war, right? But everything came to me indirectly, in the sense that experiences that I had was, until the 80s, let's say my novel, my, before the last, La Sirvienta y el Luchador, that is not in English, it's only in French, La Sirvienta y el Luchador takes place in February, March to, uh, 1980, like two weeks before Bishop Romero was killed. And that was the last time I was in El Salvador. And I wanted to write a book about that because that was my most intense experience of terror. Since then, I never had that kind of experience of terror. Terror when you go out and you go to the bus stop and you feel that the atmosphere, the air is so dense that you can even cut it and you see everyone and all your senses are like, in a different dimension, expecting the shooting, the bombing, or the kidnapping, and it's like uh, it's, 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 it's a horrible situation. And I, I left after that, like a couple of months later. I left in, in the day that the state of siege was ordered. That was March six, I guess. But then I came back in the nineteen eighty eight. The civil war was still happening, but. That was different. I came as a journalist and doing things. But that, the Civil War took our youth, right, directly or indirectly, because all our energies, even if we were not inside the country, were around that. And I think that was unavoidable.
3: And I've noticed in a couple of your books, or at least in one, which I guess is uh, Tirana Memoria, that you make an effort in presenting the point of view of the middle class, which personally I feel is the least interesting point of view of whatever happened in El Salvador. So I want to understand why. I think there's some... I don't remember if I read it in another one, but uh, that, definitely that one, you know, it's, it's very prominent, the, the woman that... Uh,
4: yeah. In that book, In Tyrant Memory, the point of view of some of the military are key for the book because this book takes place during the coup d'etat and then the general strike against the General Martinez Hernandez-Martinez um, dictatorship. And the coup d'etat was... Pushed by a group of young officers of the Salvadorian army that were trained in the US um, by the end of the Second World War and were more closer to Roosevelt ideas and whatever. And then they were defeated, and some of them um, were shot, were executed, but because they were defeated. And then came the general strike, and the general strike obliged the Force the dictator to leave the country. And so, for me, that period was important in the sense that it was the, the only moment in Salvadorian history when the old sectors, because the rich Salvadorians were against Martinez, too, you know, and even the Americans, and so that everybody was against the dictator, and was the last dictator in El Salvador, of course. And so without putting their points of view, the novel didn't have any. Any when I started that novel, I was thinking of writing the novel from her husband's point of view. That was in jail, but, but her husband had been the private secretary of the dictator, then had been ambassador in Brussels, and then had become a. Soviet spy in the U.S. and a spy doesn't write a novel or doesn't tell his secrets. So that's why I spent like three months trying to th- write and to get his voice. And I. Said, he doesn't write. There is no way that this guy is going to give me his voice because he's a spy. So. <laughs> Let's you know, the hypnosis. Yeah, and then uh, and then I said I will tell the story from the point of view of his wife. And that's how I ended up writing.
1: It's history told not by the the main protagonist. That's the beauty of that story. It's the the history
4: told by... Someone that doesn't have a political consciousness. The everyday, the the mothers,
1: the the students who don't know what their ideological affiliations are. Um, And the fisherman who takes them to the Mm. island who doesn't know what the hell they're doing. We
3: all had a, a very strong political view and participation, in a sense. So they were not real bystanders. You know, you, you cannot have a real witness outside the story in that period in Cuba. I think. Would you say a little more about your relationship with Thomas Bernhardt?
4: Well, that's uh, something that happened many years ago. I, I, have some. I think that I have some facility to imitate. It happened to me when I was a young poet that I started to write as Cesar Vallejo. <laughs> That's why I left poetry. Uh, and <clears throat> you can't get much better, can you? <laughs> no, you need to suffer a lot to write that poetry. Yeah. And, and then I was in Mexico, and I had these Guatemalan friends. The book is dedicated to him, and he used to steal these books from Gandhi bookstore and, and gave the book to me, right? You have to read this. You have to read this. And so... <laughs> And I started to read this guy, and I really enjoy his, his... Was this Ulysses Lima? No, 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 no. no. He stole sp- books from the Gandhi, didn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, but that's Bolaño's yeah. stuff. And then, of course, I was impressed. I was impressed because he his prose, I read it in Spanish, but we were talking about uh, Don Miguel Sainz translations are so good, and I know Miguel Sainz, and he he never met Bernhard because Berhard was a very difficult guy, right? Even his Spanish translator that was the first translations were made in Spain before France before the U.S. And he never he all the time, two times Don Miguel Sainz went to look for Berhard to the hotels where the appointment was, and he had already left, right? So he was a difficult guy, of course, and I was impressed by his prose, of course, by his rhythm, by his sense of music in the prose, because I think that the principle of the few is the base of that prose, right? So, you know, someone that has studied music can get that Idea of how the repetition becomes in a different motive, and how you are moving from motive to mm-hmm. motive, mm-hmm. and then at the same time the poison. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you have this music here and the poison here, right? So for me, Berha is like the cascabel. You know, it's yeah. the music, so and move. then yeah. the bite, right? That kills you. I like that. So I I I, <laughs> I read him with that. Um, passion, interest, and then, and then I, of course, I got intoxicated. Yeah. And because I got intoxicated, I wrote that book yeah. that you were talking about. So it was a purge. Yeah, I said I have to get rid of this guy, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I wrote that book, and I have never read him again <laughs> since then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don Horacio, uh-huh. um, yo soy del Salvador. Mucho gusto, Um, I've been here in London for about 10 years now. And I had an opportunity a few months ago to write something for a publication in El Salvador. I showed it to a couple of people in El Salvador and um, they kind of made me feel like I was a little bit out of touch because I was not living in El Salvador and some of what I was writing was about El Salvador. Do you ever feel that way? A little bit out of touch? A little bit like perhaps... You feel like you shouldn't write about Salvador because you don't live there.
4: Oh, I am completely out of touch, but on the contrary, that's why I write, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, because what I write is based on the mem- memories that I have of that, on the impressions and how that country wounded me. How that country affected me, and so I have still enough material to write. I'm not writing about contemporarity in El Salvador. I'm not too much interested in what is happening right now in El Salvador because um, it's not my my interest right now. And so, of course, if I go there, I feel like an alien, like if I have come from. But I'm not writing about that. I'm writing what I'm writing about thirty years ago. 25 years ago. Journalists are writing about what is happening. And I read that. And I read what is happening with the gangs, and what is happening with the political situation, and what is happening, all the problems that the country has. And and I could say I won't, I won't write about that, you know? Because it's not my task. There will be young writers have been wounded by the situation that they are facing right now there and they will do it better. You know, I don't write by references. I don't write thinking, oh, this is a great topic. You know, I will go into the gangs because that's a topic. Mm -hmm. I don't write books like that. A book has to be here Mm -hmm. and that has to be in a way related with some kind of experience that I have, something that has wounded me, that has affected me, something that has created a energy in me. And so that's why I, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about other things that is important in your question for me as a writer. Because if you are as uh, someone that is into social sciences or someone that is into contemporary studies, of course you have to be very close, right? But uh, Fiction doesn't work that way. I could write a novel about the the revolution against General Melendez in El Salvador in 1990, and, and that will be a novel, right? And I don't need to be there. If I have something that pushed me to do it. But there is the problem of language, and that's a problem that a writer has when a writer lives in a country where. He doesn't deal daily with his own language right all deals in a very flat and standard way And so in that sense uh, there are concerns because language is alive and changes like this right And a writer of, ho- of course a writer is not an anthropologist that has to have a track of all the changes in the book. That's not but right, language is not only the words, it's what it, those words express and the feeling of the people there and that's that So Sometimes I feel far of the language you know, in that sense of, of the Salvadorian way of expressing things and then I have to face situations in which I am tempted to use a kind of expression, but I have to think a lot, is that was the expression of the time of this character, right? Because now I don't know how people say that, you know, in the sense of, and of, of course we are, we are privileged because we have a language that is spoken by so many people and we are so all around. But this kind of problem for a writer coming from a country like, let's say, Poland, right, or small countries where not too many millions people talk the language, they have they face the best reflection on these were made by um, Milos, the the Polish poet, and and he he was in California, completely isolated from language, Polish language, and he said, I, had, I don't want to write in English, he said, right. Or well, Gombrowicz. Gombrowicz, uh, he didn't want to write, in, in, he didn't do it, he didn't write in Spanish. And so, but uh, for us, I mean, I just can go to Washington <coughs> or to L.A. and I have to escape from Salvadorians, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Remember that Shakespeare wrote this great novel called Hamlet, he'd never been to Denmark there's a question the, the last
4: time. i guess right
1: how how are we for time one last question
0: all right um, it's a bit of a follow up question as well i guess you've talked about how not being in el salvador's shaped how you write what about talking about the places you have been and how it's affected uh-huh. i guess i'm particularly interested in mexico and mexico city which you've alluded to which strikes me as a particularly having its own particular literary sort of ecosystem which is very are full of writers and full of exiles from all over Latin America. So could you talk a bit about that, how that has also shaped your writing?
4: At least three or four of my novels take place in Mexico City, right? So my... Until now, until now, the books that have been published, let's say that the geographical... Region goes from Costa Rica to Mexico, right? And so the characters move around those countries, and the novels take place, some of them part in El Salvador, part in Mexico, some of them part in Honduras, part in El Salvador, some of them part in Costa Rica, part in Mexico. But that has been my region, in a sense, right? But I have not been living there for the last, let's say... 12, 13 years. That has started to affect me in a way that I am thinking much more about other kind of diasporas. I right? am not going to write a novel about Americans. So I'm not going to write a novel I spent two years in Germany about Germans as German right? And I think that in this sense, I, uh, I have mentioned this before, that there are two kind of writers. Uh, this is schematic, but works. I mean there is the writer from the metropolitan powers from the empires that they go to different places and they write on those places or Graham Greene or Paul Bowles or you know writers that they move and they have the setting in those countries right but then you have the writer from the dominated periphery countries like Joyce in Ireland
3: mm-hmm.
4: So that was a periphery, that was a kind of colony. And then, it doesn't matter if he was in Zurich, if he was in Paris, he just couldn't stop writing about Dublin, right? And so, and I think that in a way, for me has been like that. It doesn't matter where I have been. I've been moving in that region that is called like Mesoamerica, right? That is from Mexico to Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what comes next.
1: Life in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think we're going to draw to a close now, so I think we should give you a, a great round of applause and thank you very much. <laughs> you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.